0: lights out everybody what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the lights out podcast i'm your host josh today we're going to be diving into one of the most chilling murder mysteries in american history and that is the Veliska axe murders this is actually only one of three episodes left for the new year and then the show will be going on break for two weeks But then we'll be back in 23 with plenty more content also at that point austin will be joining me which is very exciting that i won't be here alone well i guess i'm never really alone here with annabelle here but it'll be nice to have another voice on the show joining me because so many of these cases including the one today have so many theories to them and i think it's always interesting to delve into those theories and get different perspectives on it Today's episode has been a highly requested topic. I've actually been wanting to cover this case for quite a long time. I honestly don't think there's a more brutal way to die than to be axed to death while you sleep. I don't know about you, but there's been many, many more nights than I would like where, you know, I've been lying in bed. And, you know, every night I go around my house and make sure that all the doors are locked, the windows are closed. Because when you dive into this stuff for so long, you just kind of become paranoid. And obviously, taking a few edibles before bed to help you sleep doesn't exactly help out with that paranoia, but just the other night, I was laying in bed just trying to go to sleep, thinking I was hearing noises or hearing somebody breaking into the house and obviously there was nothing like that happening. I have a security system and all that good stuff, but I think that's... One fear that all of us share that the possibility of somebody coming into your house, your home, where you feel safe and you're resting only to have them brutally murder you is, I think, a a fear that all of us can connect with. And this is exactly what happened to the Moore family on a very gruesome night in 1912. Before we dive into, before we just jump in, I did have a few announcements I wanted to make. One, my company Malhar Media, along with my wife Kendall Ray, we actually started partnering up with the National Center for Exploited and Missing Children. We cover a lot of missing persons cases, both on this podcast, Malhar Podcast, and on her YouTube channel. And so we have started raising money for them. And as of today, recording this episode. There's almost $80,000 going towards NECMEC. And right now we are matching donations from all of our viewers, listeners across all of our shows up until the end of the year, up to $50,000. So if you're interested in joining us and supporting the National Center for Exploited Missing Children, it's an absolutely amazing cause, all the work that they do to help bring children home and just help bring awareness to those that are missing is absolutely huge. So I'll I'll leave a link in the show notes and description box where you can donate. Anything helps, even a dollar helps and help us reach $100,000 before the end of 2022. And lastly, another way you can easily support the show doesn't cost you a dime is make sure you're following the show on Spotify. I'll put the links for you below. Also, go make sure you're following us on TikTok as well at Lights Out Cast. But those things really do help out the show. It helps us grow. And so I'd really appreciate it if you just take a moment and go do that real quick before we move into the episode. But this episode of Lights Out is brought to you by our sponsors for today, which is Warby Parker, Every Plate Honey, and Lomi. Thank you guys for supporting the show. It does really help us out, helps us keep going for years to come. But without further ado, let's get into the Veliska Axe Murders. A quaint little country home in Villisca, Iowa. The Moore family had lived there in the early 1900s and had made it into a very nice family home. The neighbors were close by and a small shed was out back and a single axe used for chopping wood rested near a bundle of splintered wood. The head of the Moore family was Josiah and he was better known by his friends and family as Joe. He was a respected local businessman in town and he and his wife Sarah had four children by the name Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. Herman was 11 years old, Catherine was 10, Boyd was seven, and Paul was five. They all went to church every Sunday at the nearby Presbyterian church just a few minutes down the road. This was where they spent most of their day on June 9, 1912. The church was holding a special festival where the young children joined in to recite Bible passages for the congregation. By 9.30 p.m., the festival was over. The Moors said their goodbyes and walked back to their home on East 2nd Street. Two young girls named Lena... And Ina, Stillinger, had joined them because they didn't want to walk back to their grandmother's house in the dark. So they had planned to sleep over with their friend Catherine Moore. Lena was 12 years old and Ina was eight years old. And the three of the girls stayed up for a few more hours after everyone got home. They ate some cookies and eventually went to bed. Everyone settled in for the night and no one bothered to lock the doors. As it was extremely common... In the early 1900s for people to leave their house doors unlocked especially in the town of Vallisca. valiska was a little railroad town with a population of only 2500 people and there really wasn't that much crime the neighbors all looked after each other and they really never felt like there's anything to be afraid of but by the next day they would quickly realize how wrong they truly were on June 10th, the townspeople of Velisco would begin locking all their windows and doors. But the previous night, Lena and Ina slept on the first floor while the rest of the family went to sleep in the two bedrooms upstairs. After midnight, their silent nightmare began. In the cover of night, a stranger crept up to the back door of the house. They quietly opened the door and slipped inside. The stranger noticed an oil lamp sitting on the kitchen table when he entered. At that point, they removed the top of the lantern, reached their hand inside and bent the wick. This way, when they lit the lantern, it would only produce a small flame. They needed just enough light to get around the dark house. In the other hand, they carried an axe. The same axe that they had found in the backyard. It was actually Josiah's, and he had used it for wood cutting during his morning chores. The intruder then stuck down the first floor hallway. They passed by the room where the two Stillinger sisters had slept. He then found the stairwell and crept up to the second floor. He silently passed by the children's bedroom before moving on towards the parents. Somehow the intruder had known exactly which room they wanted to go into first. As they entered the bedroom, Josiah and Sarah slept quietly in their bed. The intruder set down the lantern on a side table and then gripped the axe with both hands. They flipped the axe of the blunt edge face downwards, and with one swing, The intruder drove the blunt metal axe into Josiah's head. A muffled crack rang out as Josiah died instantly. Sarah woke up to the noise of her husband's death, and she noticed a dark figure looming over the bed raising a weapon above their head for another strike. Reacting as fast as she could, she lifted her arms in a desperate act of defense. The intruder swung the axe downward again, and it caught Sarah in the arm. But he quickly reset his swing. He then lifted the axe above his head again, Ready for another strike. This time, when he drove the axe downward, it connected with her skull. Obviously, with this type of blunt force trauma, she died almost instantly, right beside her husband. After that, the intruder then went to the children's bedroom down the hall. Surprisingly, they were still asleep, and they didn't hear their parents being murdered in the bedroom next door. One by one the intruder killed each of the Moore children in their beds the same way and finally they went downstairs to find the two Stillinger children and their fate became the same as the rest of the Moore family. With two adults and six children dead the intruder left the house sometime in the morning before sunup. Before they disappeared they took the house keys and locked the door as they left and the scene left behind at the Moore house on East 2nd Street would become the most gruesome murder scene in Iowa history. Early the next morning on Monday, June 10th, 1912, an elderly widow named Miss Peckham began wondering why the Moore's house was so quiet. As she lived next door to the family, usually in their neighborhood people were up before sunrise to tend to the few farm animals that they had on the property, chop wood or do any other chores before the full workday started. She thought it was very strange that it was close to sunrise and the Moore's hadn't started their early morning chores yet. So she walked over to the Moore's house and began knocking on the front door but no one answered when she jiggled the handle she noticed that the door was locked she waited for a moment but still no one answered so she decided to head home and call josiah's brother ross ross then headed over and arrived at the moore's house around 8 a.m with a spare set of keys after talking with the neighbor he agreed that something was wrong no one answered the door and he couldn't hear anyone inside and as far as he knew they weren't planning on going out of town so something was definitely off They also noticed that it looked like bedsheets were covering some of the windows. Ross unlocked the door and then headed inside, and the first thing he noticed was how quiet the house was. As he walked through the dining area, he noticed that there was a plate of food left on the table that no one had eaten. A bowl of murky water sat beside it, and it looked like a basin for someone to wash their hands. It also looked like someone had started to eat a meal, but then suddenly left. As Ross looked around, he noticed there were more bedsheets hanging over mirrors in the hallway. He then decided to take a glance into the first floor guest room. As he peeked in through the doorway, he noticed the dark outline of two small bodies, covered with bedsheets soaked in blood. That was far enough for Ross, and he wouldn't go any further into the house. He immediately left and called the police. When the police arrived, the marshal named Henry Hank Horton looked deeper into the house. It was still dark inside because the bedsheets covered the windows, and there were no electrical lights in the home. Only the faint bit of sunlight came through the sheets. When he looked into the guest bedroom on the first floor, he noticed a bloody axe leaning against the wall. It looked like it had been partially washed off. The marshal kept searching through the house and then headed upstairs, and after looking through each room, he came out of the house. He looked like a ghost, his face was pale and his voice was quiet. It was at that point that he reported to the other officers that somebody had been murdered in every single bed inside of the house but that was an understatement. The intruder didn't just kill his victims with an ax blow to the head. It turned out that he stayed in the house for a while after the murders. After murdering Josiah, the intruder returned to his body and dealt 30 more blows to the head with the blunt side of the ax. He'd hit Josiah so many times that his eyes had turned to liquid in the mix of bone and brain matter. The murderer had swung with such force that the sharp end of the ax had been gouged into the bedroom ceiling above. He then proceeded to do this with every other victim throughout that entire night until their heads were completely annihilated. It seemed like the killings might have been a part of some ritual or some sick sadistic fantasy. He then held a strange kind of funeral ceremony where he placed bedsheets over some of the victim's bodies and the rest he covered with spare clothes. He then covered every reflective surface he could find in the house. All the mirrors and glass furniture were draped with bedsheets or clothing. Police also figured that the murky bowl of water that was found in the kitchen was used to clean. The murderer's hands the police couldn't understand why the killer did this but the strange ritual must have only made sense to the killer police also figured that the intruder knew who was in the house and which bedroom they were in before entering as they deliberately chose the parents bedroom first police quickly came to the conclusion that the killer used the blunt edge of the axe so that the sharp edge wouldn't get lodged in a wound some believe the intruder was already inside the home when the family got back And they had just actually been hiding in the attic or behind some bales of hay in the barn out back, watching and waiting for hours until everyone went to bed. One last thing the police found was in the guest bedroom on the first floor. Beside the axe that leaned against the wall, a mysterious red package was wrapped in a towel. When the marshal picked up the towel, they noticed it was soaked in a light red liquid, and the package weighed around four pounds. The marshal peeled back a corner of the stained towel and inside the package was a lump of uncooked bacon. It seemed that the killer had taken some bacon from the icebox, wrapped it in a towel, and set it by the murder weapon in the guest room. There seemed to be no obvious reason for why this was here, but some suspected that the raw meat was used by the killer as an artificial vagina. One of the Stillinger girls had their underwear off, and their nightgown was pulled above their waist. Next to the bacon was a small piece of metal that was a part of a keychain that didn't belong to any of the family members. Police figured that all these random objects must have been part of the killer's perverted ritual. With the strange pieces of evidence left at the crime scene, police couldn't understand much. And forensic evidence back in 1912, well, let's just say it wasn't too advanced. They could explain blood splatters and find fingerprints of the suspect. So when the other detectives, a local minister, and the coroner arrived at the house, they were all careful not to touch anything. As they searched the house for clues, a small audience had gathered outside the home Rumors spread and eventually 100 people showed up to the house that day. The detectives had to make sure to tell everyone not to disturb the crime scene. But before the print collection experts could get there, the locals had already barged their way inside the house. They passed by police and dragged their fingerprints all over the crime scene. One of the visitors even stole a fragment of Josiah's skull. The murder weapon was also passed around and eventually ended up in a museum. While the crime scene was being destroyed... Police got a report of another potential incident. Soon after the initial murders, a local telephone operator named Zena Delaney reported that she had heard footsteps approaching her front door. This was in the early morning hours just after the Moore family murders. And after the footsteps stopped at her door, the handle started rattling like someone was trying to open it. Luckily, Zena had locked her door and the stranger eventually left. If she hadn't locked her door, she might have been another victim that night. Meanwhile, back at the house at 508 East 2nd Street, the crime scene was being completely contaminated by the locals. Josiah's brother Ross actually caught one of the local men taking pictures of the bodies at this absolutely brutal crime scene. To protect the dignity of the dead, Ross took the camera and smashed it. The film was exposed to light and the pictures were destroyed. Many believe those pictures would have been crucial for the case and it's a mystery why the police didn't take any pictures themselves. The police later brought in bloodhounds to try to get the scent of the killer, but by then, the crime scene had already been tainted with the locals who had ransacked the house. Detectives had almost no forensic evidence to go on, but still a list of suspects grew. The most popular theory from police was that the killer was possibly homeless or a drifter just passing through town, Several suspects who had violent histories were brought in, but each of them had solid alibis. The other problem was that hours had passed since the murders occurred, so the killer could have easily escaped and been several towns away by the time the crime was discovered. It was believed that the killer had about a five and a half hour head start before police arrived. The detectives realized this case wasn't going to be easy to solve, so they began interviewing dozens of friends, family, and neighbors trying to find anyone who had a motive to kill the Moore family. Eventually, they caught on to a local politician who was Josiah's rival. Which leads us to one of the main suspects was a man named Frank Jones. He was a local businessman and a state senator of Iowa. He had known Josiah Moore for many years and had worked in the same field as him. Josiah had once been the top salesman for Frank Jones's farm equipment. And after seven years of working for him, Josiah decided to leave the firm in 1907 He then started his own business and became the top competitor of his old boss, Frank Jones. He took business away from Frank, including a very successful John Deere dealership, so Frank saw this as betrayal. Now there was bad blood between the two of them, and the locals suspected that the businessmen hated each other. Rumors had even spread that Josiah was having an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law. There was no evidence of this, but the rumor spread anyway. Whenever the two men would see each other in town, One of them would cross the street so they could avoid each other. A religious element also played into their rivalry. Since the nature of the murders were so horrific, the local religious communities had formed their own opinions on who could do such a thing. Even local ministers went to investigate the crime scene. The town was basically split into two religions, Methodist and Presbyterian. The two religions often didn't get along in the small town. Josiah was a Presbyterian and Frank was a Methodist. The Presbyterians accused Frank of murder while the Methodists defended him. Even though some thought it was a stretch that Frank would seek out revenge by killing Josiah and his entire family over a simple business feud, some thought it was a possibility. And if Frank didn't actually do the killing himself, maybe he hired a hitman to do it for him. To many of the locals, Frank didn't seem like the deranged killer who had bashed skulls over 30 times or use uncooked bacon in a strange perverted ritual so many thought that Frank had found the most rabid person with homicidal tendencies and let them loose on the Moore family home. A private investigator named James Wilkerson was confident about this theory. He even thought he had found the exact killer who had been unleashed, and the suspect was named William Mansfield. William had become the prime suspect in the axe murders in Blue Island, Illinois. William was known for his excessive use of cocaine, and had also gone by the names George Worley, and Jack Turnbaugh through the years. It had been four years since the Velisca murders when they finally arrested William in 1916. Two years after the Velisca murders, William was accused of murdering his wife, their infant child, his father-in-law, and his mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois on July 5th, 1914. The private investigator also thought he was connected to ax murders that happened in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Velisca murders. He also thought William was connected to the murders of two women in Aurora, Colorado. According to the PI's investigation, all the murders had been committed in the same way. The victims were bludgeoned with an ax. PI James Wilkerson was so confident about William committing the murders that he said he could prove that William was present in each of these places on the night of the murders. He also claimed that during each of these murders, mirrors were covered with bed sheets, a lantern had been left at the foot of each bed, and a bowl of water was found in every kitchen where the murderer washed their hands, just like the Veliska murders. But in each of the crime scenes, the murderer was careful to avoid leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves. The P.I. thought that William was smart enough to wear gloves because he knew his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison at Leavenworth. The P.I. eventually managed to convince a grand jury to open a formal investigation in 1916. After that, William was arrested and brought to Montgomery County all the way from Kansas City, and here they began court proceedings. A restaurant owner by the name of RH Thorpe identified William as a man he saw in the morning after the murder that was boarding a train and Clorinda, just a few miles south of vallisca But the jury quickly realized that William's payroll records provided a foolproof alibi for him. Somehow the PI had completely missed this. William had actually been in Illinois at the time of the vallisca murders hundreds of miles away. He was then released for lack of evidence. Later on, he won a lawsuit that he brought against private investigator James Wilkerson, and he was awarded $2,225, which is over $60,000 in today's money. But still, the PI wouldn't give up his theory. He believed that there was political pressure coming from Senator Frank Jones that resulted in Williams' release. It took a toll on his political career, and by 1917, he had lost his position as an Iowa State Senator, so the P.I. thought that Frank was acting behind the scenes to try and save his political career. Some also think that Frank had manipulated the detectives at the crime scene to let locals inside and ruin what little evidence they had. Even though the evidence against Frank was thin at best, many believed he was the mastermind behind it all. Even the father of the Stillinger sisters thought that Frank was behind the killing, and he took that belief all the way to his grave. Many other Presbyterians held the same belief, but many were accused of bigotry against Frank because he was a Methodist. Still, P.I. Wilkerson thought Frank desperately wanted the spotlight off of him. It was later discovered that Wilkerson was using money from the case to fund a political career of his own. A few years later, he was found having an affair with the wife of a client. And after this, this was the end of his career as a private investigator. But he still believed Frank was responsible. He also believed he was working behind the scenes to push the police to arrest a man known as... Reverend Lynn George, Jacqueline Kelly, which this is when Reverend George took the spotlight. George was a traveling preacher, and he came to the United States in 1904. He and his wife Kelly traveled around the states, and George quickly got a reputation for himself. He got in trouble for his sexual deviancies like looking through people's windows and sending lewd pictures of himself through the mail. Him and his wife finally settled down in Macedonia, Iowa in 1912 after years of preaching through the Midwest. The farming communities north of Villisca quickly became familiar with George and his strange behavior. Rumors spread that he had once suffered a massive mental breakdown and spent time in an institution. But despite his reputation, he was still known as a holy man. So on the day before the murders, George was invited to attend the Children's Day Festival at the Presbyterian Church on June 9, 1912. He had just gotten off a steam train and stepped into town. He was a strange looking man with a sharp face and leathery skin and he spoke with an english accent which made him stand out in the weeks and months prior to the murders his congregation noticed that he had been sending out strange and incoherent letters his congregation later reached out to police because they suspected he might have been a part of the murders and when the cops began investigating him things seemed to line up george had arrived the day before the murders and attended the same festival the moores family did and by the next day he was gone He was seen boarding a train at 519 AM leaving Villisca. While on the train, he spoke with an elderly couple and supposedly he even mentioned the terrible murders that had occurred in the town, but the bodies wouldn't be discovered until three hours later. Some of the physical evidence also pointed toward George as a suspect. He was left-handed and the blood spatters in the bedroom suggested that the killer was also left-handed. Since George had a history of sexual deviance, they try to connect any evidence of a sexual crime in the Moore's house. The second physician in the house noted that one of the Stillinger girls had her nightgown raised up and her underwear had been removed. Her body had also been moved, unlike the others. Police knew that she had been repositioned by the killer since her brain matter and blood were smeared on the pillow and bed sheets, almost like she had been dragged down the bed a few feet. And some had a theory that the raw bacon they found was used as an artificial vagina. So, as far as they knew, this might have been a sexual crime. But when interviewed, the physician denied that he had thought there was enough evidence to suggest a sexual assault took place when police began interviewing townsfolk and questioning them about the reverend. Some of them even mentioned that they saw the reverend stalking the Morris family around town. A dry cleaner in town later reported receiving a bag of blood-stained clothes from the reverend a few days after the killings. Most of this evidence had come to light within a few weeks after the murders. Meanwhile, the police didn't know the reverend was doing his own investigation on the murders. Only two weeks after the murders had taken place, law enforcement offered a tour of the Moore House. The purpose was to bring investigators up to speed on the investigation. So when they opened the doors, Reverend Kelly arrived, pretending that he was a detective from Scotland Yard. For those that don't know, Scotland Yard is the headquarters of the police responsible for policing the 32 boroughs of London. He didn't even wear a disguise, but his accent and his confidence convinced the officers Some believed he returned to the crime scene to take pride in his killings. When police later looked into his background, they found out that George had been raised by religious vicars. These were people who had religious leadership in a particular church. And as the theory goes, George was extremely religious and tormented by his sins. The bedsheets were placed over the victims and the mirrors because maybe the killer was religious and deeply ashamed about what they had done. In the summer of 1917, George ended up being arrested for the murders. The police even managed to get a confession out of him. He said he had killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. He believed that God wanted him to do it this way. The word slay utterly had come to his mind. He believed God had whispered to him saying, suffer the children to come on to me. So he picked up the axe, went into the house and killed them all. They then charged him with murder. But the confession was later withdrawn before his trial began. He claimed that he was beaten and tortured by the police and they had coerced him into confessing. His face was even bruised during the trial, like he had just been recently beaten in jail. So the prosecutor's case against George fell apart in court. And also there was no solid evidence that could connect the reverend to the murders. So the first trial resulted in a hung jury. And during his second trial he was acquitted in November of 1917. Some believe Reverend George was scapegoated because he was a strange man and a sexual deviant. Others thought his trial was only connected by a few coincidences. But some believe he was the maniac who murdered the Moore family in cold blood. Either way, Reverend George Kelly was let free and he tried to live a quiet life. He ended up moving to Kansas City and then to Connecticut and finally he ended up in New York City. And the last years of his life and his final resting place are unknown to this day. But during the investigation, police constantly circled back to the idea that a wandering homeless person committed the crimes. A local homeless man was caught mumbling crazy things to himself and he was quickly reported to police in June of 1912, just after the murders. His name ended up being Andy Sawyer. According to Thomas Dyer, a Creston Bridge foreman and a pile driver for the Burlington Railroad, Andy had approached him and his crew. It was 6 a.m. on the morning the murders were discovered. He was apparently clean-shaven and he wore a brown suit but his shoes were covered in mud and his pants were wet up to his knees and he asked thomas for a job and luckily thomas had an opening later that evening him and his crew went through Fontenelle, iowa they noticed andy purchased a newspaper and went off to read it by himself the newspaper had a front page article about the villisca massacre and according to thomas andy was really interested in it as days went on the crew complained that andy slept with his clothes on and was always anxious to be alone They also noticed that he liked to sleep with his axe in his hands and when given the chance, he would always randomly bring up the Velisca murders and whether or not the killer had been caught. It was clear he had become obsessed with the case. One day, Andy even personally told his boss Thomas that he had been in Velisca that Sunday night when the murders occurred. He told him he was afraid that he might have ended up being a suspect which is why he left town and showed up in Creston looking for a job. Creston is about 40 miles east of Velisca. A few more days passed and Andy was still working with the crew and one day Thomas had walked up behind Andy. He saw him sitting there with both hands on his head. He was intensely rubbing his head like he was in pain. When he noticed that Thomas was behind him he suddenly jumped up and screamed, I will cut your goddamn heads off. While he screamed he picked up his axe and began swinging it into the air. After this Thomas called the police and turned him over to the sheriff on June 18th 1912. Later Thomas's son testified against Andy He said that one day as the crew drove through Villisca, Andy pointed out the exact location where the killer had escaped town. He told everyone in the truck that the killer jumped over a manure box, crossed the railroad tracks, and then made it to an old tree where he stepped into the creek. It was at that point that the men remembered that the first day Andy had showed up to work, his pants were wet up to his knees and his shoes were caked in mud. However, Andy was later dismissed as a suspect when they had proven that he had been in Osceola, Iowa on the night of the murders. It turned out he had actually been arrested that night for vagrancy, and the sheriff had put him on a train at 11 p.m. on the night the Moore family was murdered. Still, the police kept following the theory that the killer was a wandering homeless person. Even William Mansfield, the suspect that might have been hired by Frank Jones, believed that the murders were done by a wandering serial killer. A federal officer named Matthew McClawry was assigned to the Velisca case early on. His work on the case was brought to light in 1913 when he came close to solving not only the Velisca murders, but 22 other murders that had been committed in the Midwest around the same time. And this suspect might have been one of the United States' first recorded serial killers. The federal agent noticed a string of similar murders in 1911 and 1912. A family had been axed to death in Colorado Springs. A steel pipe massacre occurred in Monmouth, Oregon. Two more murders happened in Kansas. And the most recent of these murders had happened just a few days before the massacre in Villisca. The federal agent believed that the perpetrator of these crimes might have been a man named Henry Lee Moore. And he had been convicted of murdering his own mother and grandmother in Columbia, Missouri, just months after the murders in Villisca. All of these other victims had also been brutally beaten to death with an axe. The more the federal agent dug into Henry's past, the more he could see some connections to the Villisca massacre. Henry Lee Moore was born on November 1st, 1874 in Boone County, Missouri. He was the oldest son of Enoch and Georgia Ann Wilson Moore. His father was a farmer and he had actually served in the Civil War. His mother was a nurse. Henry ended up having three younger brothers through the years, and for some time Henry had lived with a family in Franklin County, Iowa, and worked as a farmhand. He might have even fathered a child with one of the younger daughters of the farmer. He also found work as a blacksmith helper at various car shops in Moberly along the Wabash Railroad. People described Henry as a friendly-looking man, but noticed that he had some strange habits. He had a morbid curiosity of visiting morgues out in St. Louis. He would go in and ask if he could look at the dead bodies. Not only that, he also collected newspaper scraps from infamous criminal cases, like Holly Harvey Crippen, who had murdered his own wife. Despite his strange habits, Henry was a ladies' man. He often communicated with several women at once through his letters. He kept up these relationships for months. Eventually, he was sentenced to the Kansas State Reformatory in Hutchison, Kansas on a forgery charge, but he was later released on parole on April 11, 1911. Sometime after his release, Henry began a relationship with a 16-year-old girl named Queenie Nichols. Through his letters, he professed his love to her, but Queenie rejected him because he didn't own any property. He wrote back to her that soon his mother's house would be his own along with all of her money. In the winter of 1912, Henry caught a train home to Columbia where his mother and grandmother lived on the outskirts of town. By then, two of his brothers, Tilden and Turner, as well as his father, had passed away before 1910. Henry's last remaining brother, Charles, ended up leaving home soon after this, so the only people living in the house were Henry's mother and maternal grandmother. And then on the night of December 17, 1912, Henry booked a room at the central hotel under the alias L. Smith, He then went over to his mother's house and snuck inside with a rusty axe and a broken wooden handle inside he found his 63 year old mother georgia sitting in a chair by herself she was in the living room rubbing ointment on her joints henry snuck up behind her with the axe in his hands he lifted the axe up overhead and swung downward and with one swing he killed her with one hit but he ended up striking her in the head several more times After checking to make sure she was dead, Henry moved down the hallway to the bedroom where his 82 year old grandmother Mary Wilson slept. Despite the noise of the murder in the living room, Mary Wilson didn't wake up. So Henry used this to his advantage. He snuck into her bedroom, and as she slept, he drove the axe into her neck and her head several times. Both women died before they could even understand what was going on. Henry then escaped the house and threw the axe into a nearby ditch. And he returned to his hotel room still covered in blood. He tried to clean it off in a hurry, but he left several bloodstains on the bed sheets, his clothes, and his arms. The following day, he returned to his mother's house and pretended to have just found the bodies. He screamed over to the neighbors, and they called the police. When they arrived, they asked Henry where he had been staying the night before, and Henry told him that he had stayed at a hotel in the town. But Henry was sloppy. It wasn't long before they found all the bloodstains he had left behind, and when they questioned him about it, he couldn't give them an explanation. Police also found an insurance policy hidden in Moore's pocket. Strange enough, it turned out to be an insurance policy on Henry's own life payable to his mother. They ended up arresting Henry for the murder of his mother and grandmother. During interrogations, he refused to comment, but he loved talking about himself, his poetry, and how he was innocent of the crimes. He said that he'd only come back in town to celebrate Christmas with his family, and he just happened to find his mother and grandmother dead. When local newspapers started reporting about how he used to visit morgues, he denied it. He then told police that nobody in his family had ever been convicted of a crime, that they were a perfect family. He also told them that he had a degree from Kansas State Agricultural College, but police figured out that Henry was a compulsive liar and possibly a drug addict. He was soon charged with the murders and found guilty on March 14, 1913, and he was sentenced to life in prison. His attorney later tried to appeal to the Supreme Court, but the request was denied. Federal agent Matthew McClary caught wind of Henry Moore through letters sent to him by a prison official, and he tried to connect the murders in several other cases to Henry. He noticed that there were no axe murders before April 27, 1911, and there were none after Henry's caught in December 1912. This would make the Moore family massacre one of the last killings before he murdered his mother and grandmother. Unfortunately, all the evidence was circumstantial. Even when the locals heard the federal agent's theory on a potential serial killer, they didn't believe it. So many suspects had come to light. The public only wanted hard evidence. After all the theories, suspects, and acquittals, the public wanted something solid. But no one could connect Henry Moore to the crime scene. Plus, none of the other murders had evidence of the killer covering the reflective surfaces with bedsheets, washing their hands in the kitchen bowl, covering the bodies or leaving raw bacon at the scene. Only two of the other connected crime scenes had covered windows. But that wasn't an uncommon way to cover windows back then. So in the end, the M.O. didn't match. Like most of the other theories, he had no hard evidence, and they never charged Henry with the murders. But that leads us to another theory about a possible serial killer that eventually came to light. The suspect is famously known as the man from the train, and his murder spree began with a man named J. Wesley Allen. He was known as the strong man with a short temper and he lived out in rural Maine with his wife and young daughter on a large farm. The property sat on Greenville Road, which led into the town of Shirley. Travelers would come by his farm asking for directions or some water before continuing on their journey. Others were looking for work. But the angry farmer there would always send them away without helping. On May 12, 1902, Jay's closest neighbor saw a red glow up in the sky above his farm. The neighbor thought something was wrong, but none of them liked their neighbor enough to care so no one bothered to stop by. The next morning, a man was walking his children to school when he found that the Allen household was completely burned to the ground. J. Wesley Allen was found dead inside the barn. He had been bludgeoned to death with his own axe, and there were no signs of defense. And since he was known as a strong man, investigators figured the killer had taken him by surprise while doing his evening chores. The bodies of his wife and his child were found in the farmhouse bedrooms. Both of them were beaten to death in their sleep. The killer had returned Jay's corpse and beaten it over and over again with the axe. He beat him so hard that the wooden axe handle splintered into two. The metal axe blade was later found near the body in the barn. Investigators believed that the attacker had lit the farmhouse and the barn on fire separately. When they searched the perimeter of the property, they came across a local shack that belonged to a local handyman. It had been broken into, and a revolver was missing from inside. An unknown pack of matches had also been left on the table. Police ran with the theory that J. Wesley Allen had gotten into a fight with the suspect earlier in the day. Then the suspect broke into the shack, waited there until nightfall, and then attacked the family. The owner of the shack, Henry Lambert, became the prime suspect. He was known as a loner, and there were accusations that he was obsessed with 14-year-old Carrie Allen. He was educationally challenged and illiterate, and they easily convicted him of the murders but several years later, he was exonerated. As for the murders, the investigation ended and no one else was charged for the crime. Between the years of 1898 and 1912, 29 mass murders happened across the United States. These mass murders claimed the lives of 101 men, women, and children, and many of the crimes were similar to the Velisca ax murders. It's believed that the killer was introverted and sexually frustrated, and they killed out of a strong feeling of hatred towards the society that had wronged them. According to the theory, this man from the train crossed the country for over a decade. He usually worked as a lumberjack and a farmhand, and he was a hard worker and had a special talent for what he did. When there was no more work, he would hop on a train and move over to the next state. When he didn't find work, it's believed this was when he was the most dangerous. He would hop off a slow-moving train and come into an unfamiliar town. Once he caught sight of a family residence, he would feel his rage beginning to grow. On July 28, 1904, a tragedy happened in the small settlement of Colfax, Georgia. That evening, a family of five was slaughtered just outside of town, and their home was only a few hundred yards from the local train tracks. Henry Hughes was a farmer, and he was bludgeoned to death with his own axe while he was working out in his yard. The attacker then broke into the main house and murdered his two infant children. Then he went on to beat the man's wife and nine-year-old daughter to death. The killer then dragged the bodies into one room and set the house on fire. After police investigated the scene, they found out the two female victims had been molested. The locals quickly accused a nearby settlement of African American sharecroppers. They arrested two of the workers before an angry mob lynched them. As far as the police were concerned, the crime was solved. Meanwhile, the killer was likely moving on to his next victims. Two years later, the murders would be repeated in almost the exact same way. On the early morning of July 13, 1906, a young girl named Addie Lyrely woke up to find her house in North Carolina. was on fire. A few feet away from her, her six-year-old sister Alice was bleeding out from a wound to her head. She was still alive and slowly dying. Addie woke up her older sister and they both ran to their parents' bedroom, but inside they found the body of their parents battered, bloody, and dumped on the floor. They had been covered with blood-soaked bedsheets, All the young girls could do was go back and get their wounded sister and drag her out of the burning building. The front door was still wide open after the attacker had left the scene. They laid their sister down on the ground, and they tried to scream for help when a deafening horn of a train passed by, as their home was only a few hundred yards from the train tracks. And again, the local black community was blamed. An angry mob overpowered the local militia and hanged two suspects who had been arrested on suspicion of the murders. And again, Local police figured that the case was closed. During this particular time in history, literacy rates were low across the United States. Local newspapers were slow at reporting serious crimes in neighboring areas and barely anyone could read anyway. So no one would connect these crimes until more than a decade later. Since there were no black or Mexican communities to blame for the murders in Villisca, it was up to investigators to actually do their jobs. But they wouldn't realize that there were many more murders connected to the mysterious man on the train on september 21st 1909 a man named george meadows woke up to the sound of his dogs barking outside his farmhouse in hurley virginia he went outside to check the dogs when he was shot twice in the stomach the attacker then swung an axe into his head and knocked him unconscious his wife mother-in-law and three children were then massacred inside the farmhouse their skulls were crushed using the blunt end of the axe while his family was slaughtered george was still alive He laid on the ground outside of his home, bleeding out as he heard his family being murdered inside. The killer then came back outside and discovered that George was still breathing. He took the axe and drove it into George's neck, separating his head from his shoulders. A local resident named Howard Little had a history of violence and had been convicted of murder while working as a private detective. His wife had discovered that he was planning on leaving her for another woman. So she went to the police and claimed that Howard wasn't home on the night of the murders howard was then arrested and charged with the crimes two years later he was actually executed by the electric chair he had claimed he was innocent down to his last breath only a year later a man named george bernhardt was murdered with a pickaxe in his barn in rural missouri his son and a farm worker went looking for him and their fate was the same as george's they were both murdered with a pickaxe and the killer hid their bodies under bales of hay the killer then broke into the farmhouse and hunted down George's wife. He found her hiding in a closet and beat her to death with a metal clock weight. The police ended up arresting a neighbor who had a long feud with the family. Eventually, the suspect was released due to lack of evidence. But all of these murders seemed to point toward the same killer. This killer never stole any money or valuables from the crime scene, and he would often cover the faces of his victims after they were dead. Early on, he tried to burn the properties down to hide the evidence, but later he would only lock the doors and cover the windows before leaving. All of the crime scenes were within close walking distance to a nearby train tracks. He would also kill his victims using tools or weapons that were found on the property, and he usually used the blunt edge of the tool to bludgeon the victims, in the head. He often targeted family homes at night, and they often had young daughters inside, and many of the murders also had traces of sexual assault even though these murders had been happening for 13 years they weren't officially linked until 1911 on march 22nd 1911 a school caretaker and his family were beaten to death in san antonio texas the house had been locked and the windows had been sealed with bed sheets neighbors broke into the home to try and help the family but all they found were dead bodies and a bloodied axe that was left in the middle of the house ten weeks later william hill was murdered along with his wife and two young children in the town of ardenwald oregon the murderer had stolen an axe from the neighbor's yard to bash in their heads while they were sleeping he then covered the windows of the house with bed sheets before locking the doors the authorities finally linked the two crimes together but it was already too late an elderly couple in rainier washington had been murdered with an axe while they slept in their beds at a small railway stop police noticed that the couple hadn't been robbed and later in the summer the killer most likely found work as a logger And when the weather turned cold, he headed north to find employment in the mining communities. He clearly had plenty of money, but he pretended to be poor so he could hide his true identity. He also never mentioned or bragged about his crimes, and he never took trophies from the crime scenes. Some claim to know who this killer was. Out in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, there is a small farmstead located not far from the Boston to Albany railway line. A man named Francis D. Newton lived here with his wife and young daughter, on January 7th, 1898, Francis got into an argument with his farmhand, Paul Mueller. Paul was a German migrant who traveled to the U.S. in the late 1800s. He had arrived at Francis's door, desperately looking for work, so Francis hired him. Paul was known as a loner, and people described him as short and unattractive, and he could barely speak English. The argument between Francis and Paul set something off inside of him. Paul then stole the axe from the woodpile and smashed in the heads of all three family members in their sleep. He sexually assaulted the two dead women before covering their bodies with blankets. He then stole some valuable coins from the home and left the blood-soaked axe propped up next to the daughter's bed. He then placed blankets over the doors and windows before pouring kerosene all over the house. He turned on a lamp and left it nearby before locking the door and leaving. But the flame from the lamp never lit the kerosene, so the house never burnt down. Multiple eyewitnesses saw the farmhand running to the local train station to make his escape. A nationwide manhunt began, but the suspect was never caught. He rode a few trains and made sure to change directions to throw off anyone who tried to follow him. The detectives eventually gave up, and the killer became just another homeless man hopping trains. This case was buried for more than a century until Bill and Rachel James stumbled across it while researching the Velisca murders. They think Paul might have been the man that came across the angry farmer, Jay Wesley Allen, and after Jay yelled at Paul this might have reminded him of being employed by Francis. Paul then might have broken into the nearby shack looking for shelter. Meanwhile, he plotted against Jay and later murdered his family. Over the next decade and a half, Paul might have continued his killing spree in the same way. And after the Velisca axe murders in 1912, the killings stopped. It's believed that Paul might have died or maybe he went to prison under a different identity Or he might have left the country and returned to mainland Europe after people realized that a serial killer was using the rail network to kill his victims. And that leads us to mid-March of 1922. The Hinterkaifeck murders took place. This again was where an entire family was bludgeoned to death in a small farming town in Germany. Some believe this might have also been the work of Paul Mueller. By now he would have been too old to have been drafted into the world war. He could have moved around post-war Germany in secret, continuing to kill. If Paul was the Veliska axe murderer, he might have killed countless victims while evading the authorities for decades. Again, there's no physical evidence that connects Paul Mueller to the crimes, but the killer's M.O. matches 29 mass murders that happened in the United States. But at the end of the day, the man on the train still remains a mystery, and we might never know the full scale of his crimes or what happened to him. So that leads us to present day, and as of today, this case is still unsolved. Over the years, several other suspects have been arrested and questioned, but no solid evidence connected anyone else to the crime. Eyewitnesses had seen men hanging around the Moores' house the day before the crime. Others had seen a man step off of a train wearing shoes covered in blood, but each suspect led to a dead end. In March of 1917, a local minister for the Church of Christ in Oklahoma City told reporters, that a man had confessed to the murders in Villisca on his deathbed, but the minister could not remember his name. He had met the man in a hotel in Raidersburg, Montana, in July 1913, about a year after the crime. Right when the minister saw the man, he could tell he was at death's door. He was in incredible pain and lived only a short time after the minister arrived. They believed the man was dying from alcohol withdrawal. As he saw the minister enter the room, the man began confessing his crimes. He said he had been guilty of many things, and he wanted to get them off his chest before he died. But because he was dying, he could barely speak, and he was physically unable to go into the details of his crimes. Quickly, he told the minister that he had been living in Villisca at the time of the murders, and he was in the blacksmith business there. He told the minister he had murdered everyone in the house, almost immediately after he had confessed to the crimes. He died soon after. Detective Wilkerson ended up looking into his story, but again, he came up with nothing, and the case went cold again. Eighteen years after the murders, another man confessed to the crimes. In March 1931, George Myers, a 48-year-old prisoner in county jail in Detroit, waited for his burglary sentence. While in jail, he confessed to the axe murders. He came up after five hours of interrogation by two detectives who had received an anonymous tip by letter. George had claimed that a minister and a businessman who were unnamed, promised to pay him $5,000 to kill the Moore family. He said the offer came through an underworld acquaintance he had met in Kansas City. This acquaintance took him to Villisca, where they met the unnamed man who wanted the job done. George said the man pointed out the house of the family he wanted killed. George demanded part of the money before he did the job, so the mysterious man gave him $2,000 and said he would give him the rest afterwards. George said he grabbed the axe and entered the house around midnight. He confessed to killing the Moore family while he slept. Later that day he met the unnamed man again who had hired him and told him the job was done but the man refused to pay him the rest of the money he was owed until he was sure that the family had been killed. Afraid of getting caught George fled town before daybreak and never returned so years later George confessed to killing the family but the problem was is that he never mentioned killing the two Stillinger girls in the guest room. He even insisted that he didn't kill the two girls. Officers agreed that his story didn't add up so George was never charged since then almost 100 years have passed and even though the crimes were never solved the story of the moore family lives on especially at the property of 508 east 2nd street if you remember just days after the murders occurred almost all of the 2500 locals from the town of villisca came to pay their respects to the family a horse-drawn carriage procession carried the moore family to their final resting places and many believe that their spirits were never truly at rest After the house at 508 East 2nd Street was cleared out and abandoned, many locals still thought it was occupied by the spirits, who had been murdered. Multiple different owners over the last hundred years have reported paranormal phenomenon. They have heard ghostly cries come from the bedrooms. Clothing has been mysteriously pulled out of drawers and thrown across the floor. Doors have slammed shut for no reason. Noises have been heard in the attic as well, where many believe the killer had waited for the family to return. One of the previous owners claimed that an invisible hand clamped around his wrist while he was sharpening a knife. The knife then spun around in his hand and cut him. Others have noticed a strange fog drifting through some of the bedrooms after midnight, right around the time the murders had occurred, and some have even seen the outline of a shadowy axe murderer standing at the foot of their bed. All of the activity was too much for one family that had just moved in, and they moved out after living there for only one day. Teams of ghost hunters have investigated the house many times in recent years. I mean, I can't tell how many tours of the house and ghost hunting expeditions are posted on YouTube, but there's a ton. And priests have attempted exorcisms on the property. But many believe that the eight spirits still haunt the house to this day. And over the years, the house has been turned into a museum. A sign sits outside the front lawn that advertises the Velisca axe murder house. It costs only $10 to enter but four hundred twenty eight dollars to stay a night if any visitors want to try and experience the paranormal hauntings for themselves go right ahead while staying the night a travel channel ghost adventures crew claimed they heard the voice of the killer inside the house the ghost admitted they killed six kids another visit by paranormal enthusiasts ended in mayhem one night in 2014 police were called over to the haunted house during a night stay, a team of paranormal researchers were investigating the house when they heard one of the other members scream out for help. They had found him covered in blood after he had stabbed himself in the chest. No one knows exactly how or why he stabbed himself, but as a result of his stay in the house, he ended up in a nearby hospital, and he luckily survived his wounds. After a century of paranormal reports and dead-end theories, the case of the Veliska murders has no end. And many believe the spirits of the dead continue to haunt the property at 508 East 2nd Street. Many blame the failed criminal cases on police allowing locals to enter, contaminate, and steal from the crime scene early on. If they could have protected the evidence, a crucial clue might have come to light. And the case could have been solved and the spirits could have been put to rest. Today, all we are left are the theories. The Senator, Frank Jones, and his hitman, William Mansfield, a wandering homeless person looking for trouble the axe murderer Henry Moore who killed his mother and grandmother or the strange and perverted Reverend George Kelly but that leads us to the end of the Velisca axe murder case and I think all we're left with is even more questions I think unfortunately due to the absolutely horrific preservation of the crime scene we will never know who committed these brutal murders the fact that the police did not do everything in their power after a whole family had just been bludgeoned to death to keep the locals out of the house from contaminating the crime scene is just beyond me. But again, we're talking early 1900s here and I think it's hard to to really wrap our heads around just what what it was like in this time period. I mean, it's just a totally different world. And the way police conducted investigations was elementary compared to what we're capable of today. With that being said though, I think if the crime scene had been preserved better and you know they'd actually done a thorough search for evidence, fingerprints, things like that or DNA even. I mean, they likely wouldn't have gathered that at the time, but I think there may have been a possibility they would have found some additional clues that might have pointed them in a certain direction. But on the same token, I think whoever committed the Voluska axe murders was a seasoned pro. I think they knew exactly what they were doing. They were clearly confident in carrying out these types of brutal killings. I mean, to kill somebody with an axe is, is definitely a, a, is is more rare. Obviously, at that time period, there was a number of different axe killings, and I do think Whoever this individual was, was likely a serial killer that did in fact travel across the country committing these similar type of killings everywhere they went and escaping on the train. I think it makes a lot of sense, for especially for this time period and where these crimes took place geographically. I think it's very likely that a serial killer, you know, whether it was Paul or any of these other guys, I mean, who knows? I personally think that whoever it, this person was is still unidentified and we'll probably never know who they were. They probably died and we'll never know who they were and connect them to these crimes. I think it's very likely that this serial killer committed many of these axe murders across the entire country during those early years in the 1900s. Based on the crime scenes, I think it's very obvious that whoever this person was disliked families for some reason, maybe it's their own childhood or the lack of a family, caused them to lash out in this way and just unleash brutality on these innocent families. It's interesting though that they put bed sheets over the bodies, covered up the windows and mirrors. I think that's, that's kind of an interesting part and doesn't necessarily play into the typical profile for a brutal serial killer. Which causes me to think that maybe, maybe it was somebody like the Reverend who maybe had, you know, a conscience after all. And after committing the murders out of rage, felt slightly bad that they decided to cover everything up. But I don't know, or maybe that's just to hide the scene for as long as possible i mean that's another scenario that maybe was just the the tactic to allow them to get away from the crime scene as fast as possible without drawing suspicion to the house and making it very difficult for people to look inside the windows and even you know when police enter making it difficult to immediately find the victims again remember back in this day and age people did not lock their doors for many years after that even i I know my own parents in the 60s and 70s said that they oftentimes didn't lock their doors people really felt safe in their communities and their neighborhoods and really trusted those that lived around them and so there was always evil people that took advantage of that and i mean when the doors unlocked i mean it's not difficult to gain access to to the family like this. So, with all that being said, I personally believe this was a serial killer that's unidentified. It's possibly Paul Mueller, one of these other guys that I mentioned. But I still think there's a possibility that whoever this killer was is still unidentified and probably will never be identified or even connected to all of the murders across the country. But I want to know what you think. Which theory do you think makes the most sense? Let me know in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. If you're watching on Spotify or listening on Apple Podcasts, you can always tweet us at Lights Out Cast or message us on Instagram or TikTok. But I'm gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Lights Out Podcast and I'll see you next week. Until then, Lights Out, everybody.